Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read those as we begin. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel, Have I found such great faith? When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. You may know that Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. Not only was he a great preacher, though, he he was also a trainer of pastors and preachers. He trained thousands of men at his preacher's college in London. One thing he was known for in particular, Spurgeon, this is, uh, was his effective use of illustrations. And he thought about that a lot, and he taught his students about it. In fact, after Spurgeon died, one of his lectures to his students was posthumously published as a book called The Art of Illustration. And in that book, Spurgeon went on about uh, how effective and needed illustrations are, and the main illustration that he used to make his point was that of a window. He talked about how windows are vital. You know, without them, a building could be structurally sound, but it would be dark and and dreary and boring, potentially. But with the window, the light is able to come in. The object to be focused upon can be seen for what it is. The contrasts can be there, even as we see the light coming in from the window here. You You can see something, an object, and see what it is, and you can see what it isn't. That's what illustrations do. They show us what things are, what what is there and what is not. And the text that I just read for us, uh, it doesn't include a sermon, but it includes an illustration. Specifically, it talks about, with this encounter that Jesus has with this man, an illustration of what Jesus had just preached in chapter 6. We have a a real-life illustration, then, of what he had taught in that that chapter, that chapter contains what many have called the Sermon on the Plain. It's essentially Luke's kind of scaled-down version of what we find in Matthew 5-7, to the Sermon on the Mount. That sermon, you probably know, it talks about what it means to be a disciple, and it divides all people into two categories. There are those who are true disciples, and there are those who are false. They're not disciples. There are those who are blessed, and there are those who are cursed. There are those who are believers, those who are unbelievers, and there are those who have true faith and those who do not. So when we come to this 
man, the centurion, in chapter 7, what I'm making the point of this morning is that this man and his circumstances flesh out for us in a real-life illustration the epitome of saving faith. It's the epitome of saving faith. He's the, the perfect portrait of what Jesus was talking about. He's really the ideal complement. In fact, if you can kind of picture Jesus as he, he moves from preaching that sermon to coming to Capernaum and finding this encounter with the man and him saying, look, that's, that's exactly what I was just talking about. He, in essence, says that much in verse 9 of our text. So what I'm going to put forth for us here is that Luke 7, 1 through 10, presents, as I said, a real-life illustration of saving faith so that you can better understand how to live by that faith to the approval and glory of God. We're going to see that in our our structure for the sermon this morning. We're going to see that illustration in four parts. First part, verses 1 through 3, this is the circumstance of saving faith circumstance of saving faith. It says, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. This was A.D. 29 in the fall. It was just a few months since Jesus had begun his ministry uh, in the summer of A.D. 29, and now we see that he's going to Capernaum. Capernaum was, it was basically the hub of his ministry in Galilee. He would often go from Capernaum and come back to Capernaum Spent lots of time there, had many friends. And we see here that he comes in contact with the messengers from this centurion soldier, a Roman military officer. A centurion, just a word about that, it's, a, it's really kind of the highest ranking non-commissioned officer there was in the Roman army. There were six centurions to a cohort. There were ten cohorts to a legion. And at the height of Rome... Rome's uh, power, its military power, there were 28 legions, so it's kind of a select group of men who were in this position of centurion. They were the most respected men, they were the most elite, they were really seen as the most professional soldiers. They were the, the consummate soldier's soldier, and they were really in this sweet spot because they were, they were submitted to by soldiers below them and well-respected, and they were depended upon by the men above them. Uh, and, and these were guys who, they, as non-commissioned officers, they worked their way up. They had been forced to make real-time life-or-death death decisions. They, they, they had spent many years in battle. And so they, they weren't the ones who were, you know, the, the legates and the tribunes who were uh, assigned their position due to political connections or family connections. These were guys who started as soldiers, and they worked their way up. And so you can see how they would have this tremendous respect by the, the people below them. I think of the kind of the stereotypical World War II movie where the, the platoon leader, maybe he's a sergeant or a captain, and he's got all the respect of his men because he's been in the battles with them. And then you have this graduate out of college come in, assigned to a place over and above their beloved superior, and he has nothing like the respect that the one of them has. Uh, in police work, I had kind of the same thing. Guys would do really well, and they would shoot up the ranks, and maybe they would go to a specialized unit, and they would come back to patrol, and they would be supervising 25-year veterans. And, you know, the, the knock on, on this young sort of upstart was that they had no street time. They'd not been out really answering calls more than a few months and now they're coming back to give orders to these who had 
really seen everything. Uh, but that's what this centurion was. So he was very well respected. But he wasn't rugged and cynical to the point of being uncaring. We see that he, he cared, uh, he, you know, he esteemed his slave. He cared for him greatly in this text, his doulos. And so he sent elders to Jesus. He heard that Jesus was there. The slave was near death. He wanted the slave to be healed, and he, he sent these elders. This is not um, referring to religious elders. Luke will later use a different word for that, but this is referring to essentially who are the civic leaders of the city. They're, they're kind of like the representatives of the people. So he sent for them, and uh, he had you know, legitimate authority to send these guys. Uh, in, in that time, any Roman centurion, he could order a Jew to, to go a full mile on whatever business he wanted without further explanation, and the Jew was bound to do that. Uh, but we see here that you know, from the Jews' response, he, he, they were not doing that under compulsion. They, they, they were caring very much for the centurion. He had endeared himself to them, at least to some degree. He had won them over. So that kind of shows the, the general circumstance. Uh, but we know that with God, there are no coincidences. So this was, this was very purposeful, I would have us see. Uh, this is a divine interaction that is used to illustrate Jesus' point about true saving faith. God doesn't do, you know, coincidences. He doesn't do that in, in your life. He doesn't do that in my life. I'm sure you've had this happen before where some kind of teaching uh, you've been exposed to, maybe it's in your own study, maybe it's been here for a sermon, and then Sunday evening or, or Monday morning, you have the, I mean, it's on a platter for you. It's right there. This is the opportunity to apply what you just learned. And you could say, kind of with Jesus, this is exactly uh, what that text was about and what I heard about. So, so that happens. And then he also uses circumstances the Lord does sovereignly to expose what is really there. That's what he was doing with this centurion in his heart. And what we're going to see is that's what he was doing with the Jewish people as well. And he's going to do that for you. When are the times that, that what's inside really shows out? you know what the answer is. It's the, the difficult times. Typically, it's going to be the trials. That's what brings out what is really there. In fact, as Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Plain, you can see that in Luke 6, uh, 47 or 48 there, actually below it, he, he gives this analogy of how the one who has true faith, he's the one building his house on the rock. And when the storm comes, his foundation becomes evident. It becomes clear to everyone what he's really relying upon. So that's what's going on here. That's the circumstance of saving faith. Now, as the encounter unfolds, we're going to move to our our second segment of the illustration. Uh, The Jewish elders come, and they present what we will find to be a contrast to saving faith. This is verses 4 and 5. I trust you'll see why I say that. This is the contrast to saving faith. They earnestly implore Jesus, literally they, they are begging him. They are urging him. They are pleading with him. And why is it? What's their explanation? Literally, in the text, it says, worthy is he. They, they emphasize it by putting that word first. Worthy is he. The reason you need to come and save this man's slave is that he is worthy. I hope you see the contrast immediately. It's kind of a, a dead giveaway for their theology it's a theology of merit. It's a theology that, uh, 
builds itself upon being justified by one's works. It's really the antithesis of justification by faith. They say this man is worthy. That word is axios in Greek. Maybe you hear our English word axiomatic or an axiom. An axiom is just a a statement that we can make that's generally approved by everyone as being true. It doesn't really need any further explanation. And that's what they're saying with this man. He, you know, he's, he's good. He's done all these things. He's worthy of you helping him. The further root of that verb, it has to do with, uh, that word is a verb, ago, and it has to do with balancing scales. They're saying that this man's good has, has tilted the, the scale into his favor. Uh, he, he deserves it. That is what they're saying. He deserves it. And if you flip that around and look at it from Jesus' perspective, what are they saying to him? They're saying, they're making the argument that you owe it to this man to go and heal his slave because he deserves it. This is their mindset. There are some who are worthy. There are some who are unworthy. There are some who, by their deeds, are sufficient and they are therefore worthy. There are some who, by their deeds, are insufficient and therefore are unworthy. So in their estimation, this man's fit. He's on equal footing with the the miracle he's needing. Now they give their reasons. We see that in in verse 5. This is their further explanation. He says, For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. This is great praise for the centurion. They're obviously impressed. And they're impressed with the centurion. They're impressed with this man who they would naturally resent. I mean, who is the centurion? He's the face of the one oppressing them. He's the face of the ruling power. He's the face of the emperor himself to them. He's the face of the one who is in their land, ruling it, the land that God had promised to Abraham, to their fathers. It's amazing. They didn't resent him, though, because in their eyes, he's worthy. He's one of the good ones. The centurion, I think, just as an aside, we could strongly make the argument that, I mean, he's become a God-fearer. There, there are instances when rulers might try to endear themselves for political reasons, but the whole picture that's painted here, most pointedly with Jesus' assessment, is that this man was a, was a God-fearer. And, and we see that, too. They, they say he built our synagogue. They say he himself built our synagogue. It's not like he, he paid enough to have one brick of the synagogue have his name on it. This is, this is him being the prime donor. He's the one who built it for them. Centurions were, as I said, very highly respected, but they were also highly compensated. I mean, the wealth gap between the soldier and the centurion was tremendous. But I want us to just push this a little bit of, of the question of who are these elders really concerned with? Uh, nobody, I don't think, would argue that they're concerned with the slave. They never mention the slave at all. They're just talking about how the centurion is worthy. So maybe at, at least indirectly they're concerned with the centurion because they like him, they respect him. But, but when we really press it, I think we can make the argument that they're concerned with themselves. What is it that they're saying? We legitimately could read this. He is worthy because of his relation to us. Look, this is what they say. He loves us. He built us, our synagogue. What should they have said? 
If they're going to come to Jesus and make the case that this man meets the, the criteria, he checks off all the boxes of who should be granted this, this miracle. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I just want you to see out of their own law what they would be steeped in and would have learned. Let's see what their thinking should have been. Deuteronomy 6 is a, a text you probably know. It's commonly referred to as the Shema, starting in verse 4. Shema is just a Hebrew imperative verb meaning hear or listen. Verses 4 and 5 say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So they said, He loves us. They should have said, He loves our God. Then, right after this admonition to love Yahweh, comes another warning in Deuteronomy 6 not to forget who it is that gives them everything. Look down at verse 10. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. So they should have said, he loves our God, and, and it's you, God, who gave us our synagogue through him. But they're not appealing to Jesus by faith. They're, they're appealing to Jesus clearly by human merit. And they've misidentified the centurion's fruit as the root of that fruit. They're seeing the, the fruit as the justification. Some might ask, you know, maybe we're being too harsh on these Jewish elders. Uh, there is, after all, room for us petitioning God to intercede on behalf of someone who's, you know, worthwhile in the kingdom and who's our family and our friends. That's certainly true. There's a, uh, an instance back in the 16th century with Martin Luther where he had one of his, <clears throat> we could call him a lieutenant. He was, he was a co-worker, a fellow laborer of his in the Reformation efforts. This na man's name was Friedrich Myconius, and he, he fell ill, uh, badly ill, and he thought he was going to die. And he, he wrote Luther a letter saying as much, and he basically said, you know, uh, my day is coming to an end quickly, and I think by the time you even read this letter, I'll be gone. Uh, and just to summarize that, he basically said, see you in heaven. I'm out. Well, Luther, he prayed, and then he wrote right back to Myconius, and he said, I command thee in the name of God to live. I still have need of thee. Actually, Myconius obeyed. He, he outlived Luther by a few months. He recovered. Uh, so, so the point is, uh, I don't want you to get me wrong, there's certainly a place for intercession for those who are, are needed, those who we love, but that is not what's going on here with these Jewish elders. Look at what's happening, and, and, and again, where they are. They're, they're in Capernaum, like I said, in the circumstances. This is the base of Jesus' Galilean ministry, and Jesus did tons of miracles there. In Luke 4.23 
we, we find that Jesus had done so many miracles in Capernaum that the people of Nazareth were saying, we want you to replicate that. Do that here. In Mark 1.21, we find that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. Mark 2 and Luke 5, they record this very familiar instance when the paralytic was lowered down from the ceiling by his friends and healed by Jesus. That was in Capernaum. Luke 6, verse 19, we see that there were throngs of people who were coming to hear Jesus, to follow him, to get their needs met. And that verse says that he healed them all. So there was no shortage of miracle working going on in Capernaum in front of these Jewish elders. There was no shortage of confirmation that Jesus was who he said he was. But what is Capernaum known for? Look over at Matthew chapter 11 with me. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus gives some scathing words to Capernaum after all these miracles have happened. Verse 23 of Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven. That's pretty black and white. You will not go to heaven. You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's shocking. More tolerable for Sodom. I mean, they're the ones we point to for the most heinous reasons. Intense judgment, Jesus says, is coming to those persisting in their notions of self-worth. You can go to Capernaum today, and you know what you'll find? You won't find anything. It's gone. Archaeologists think that they've seen the foundation of this synagogue that's in our text, but there's no Capernaum. Uh, and it's, as Jesus said, worse for them than for Sodom. Hence, the parallel account of this instance in Matthew, Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12, right after this interaction with the centurion, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a real contrast in our illustration. The contrast between saving faith and the, the justification by works idea. And it's a contrast that wasn't just Jesus' day, obviously. It's very much alive and well today. Where do we find it? We find it in every religion apart from the religion of the exclusive message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ so a huge contrast. If you want to go back with me over to our text in Luke, we're going to keep moving through our illustration. We moved from the circumstance of saving faith to the contrast of saving faith. Now we're coming down to the confession of saving faith. This is verses 6 through 8. This centurion, he is nameless. He's faceless for us, but he still provides such an illustration I think he'll be a very interesting guy to talk to in heaven. But he makes this confession, and it is astounding. How do we know that? Well, I think we know that most clearly from verse 9 and what Jesus says about it. It says, Jesus marveled at him. That word is thalmatso. It means to 
to be amazed by, to be uh, almost shocked by, just perplexed. It's a very common word in the New Testament, but almost always when this word is used, it's with Jesus as the object. Everybody saw Jesus and they were amazed at him. Of course, I mean, he's God. He does, does these miracles. He walks on the water. He's feeding 5,000 people. They're amazed at him, and rightfully so. In only two instances in the New Testament is Jesus the subject. When Jesus is amazed, this is one of them. And they both actually have to do with faith because the other is in Mark 6, verse 6, where Jesus is amazed at the unbelief of those in his hometown of Nazareth. It's amazing. Jesus is affirming this. So we want to see what's going on here with the centurion. What's going on with his confession, and most importantly for us, what can we, we learn from it? Well, first I would have us see that the centurion was considerate. You know, he, I don't mean that he was, he was polite, the way we might use considerate, but he was considering. He was thoughtful. He was, he was contemplative about what was going on here. You see, he had sent these elders in verse 3. He sent them on a mission. They had a task to do. They were to go get Jesus and bring him back seeking for him to heal his, his slave. Luke uses the word apostello there. You know, they were sent out. We hear, we hear our word apostle. That's what apostles are. They're those sent out on a mission. That's what the centurion did with these Jewish elders. But now he's, he's thought through this more. There's some time that has gone by, and in verse 6, he's sent out pimpo, a different word. This one has Jesus sending his friends out with a message. It's really more about the thought. Before, they were, they were sent out to, to accomplish an objective. Now they're sent out to convey the centurion's mind, to, to tell Jesus what he was thinking about. The centurion has considered these things, and he's come to the conclusion that he's in a real bind. We see that in verse 6 and verse 7. You know, Jesus, you shouldn't come under my house because I am not worthy verse 6, and likewise, I can't come to you. Same reason, I am not worthy, verse 7. And with that time that had lapsed, you can kind of picture the centurion at his home, maybe he's caring for his slave, but he's thinking this. He's, he's running it through his brain, the filter there, about what he knows about God and what is the appropriate thing, and, and clearly the majesty of the Savior is, is elevating in this man's thinking. <clears throat> he uh, you know, I talked about how there was a throng of followers following Jesus, and uh, this is, you know, true. And it's, it's not that Jesus was coming towards him and his house with a group of, you know, tw 12 kind of like demure disciples who were just sort of walking quietly on the, along the road. No, this is thousands of people. So even if from his home the centurion can't see, maybe there's an obstruction, a house or a hill or something, he could probably see a cloud of dust coming. And th so this entourage is coming closer to his house. They're coming to see a miracle that's about to happen with this, you know, the, maybe the last person you would expect it of, this Gentile Roman centurion. Thousands of people coming. And he has thought this through, and, and this is what he's come to. He's, he, he says, I realize who you are, and I realize who I am. So just say the word. I'm not worthy to come, and you're not... I'm not worthy for you to come to me. And what does Jesus call this? He calls it faith. The centurion confesses what he has come to know. It's not blind faith. He's come 
to, to understand something of who Christ is. He's thinking rightly of who Jesus is. And the correlation with that, he's thinking rightly now about who he is. That leads us right in to see the, the centurion's humility. His thoughtfulness is marked by that humility. It's got to be that way, logically. They said he was worthy. <clears throat> this man is worthy. What does he say? I mean, point blank, I am not worthy. Again, I, I said axios was the word they used. He's done enough. He's done these kinds of things that are, that are putting him forth as a worthy recipient of your grace. And he says, I am not ikanos, a different word for worthy. <clears throat> While they were talking about action, he was talking about identity. He saw that of my own being, in my essence, this is who I am. I am not worthy as a human being, as a person. As he does that, He's putting himself right on the same plane with a couple of other famous New Testament uh, characters that we see. He's putting himself there with John the Baptist. Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says, I am not worthy, Ikanos, to untie the strap of your sandal. The Apostle Paul, similarly, 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I am not worthy, Ikanos, to be called an apostle. And then later in 2 Corinthians 2.16, I am not worthy, Ekanos, for the gospel ministry itself. This is who I am, my being. This is what the centurion is coming to realize. In and of myself, we're just on different strata, and so I am not worthy. I want us to see that, that that's what humility truly is. It's not thinking lowly of yourself. It's thinking clearly and rightly of yourself. It's not like, if you're familiar with Uriah Heep, maybe, he's one of the main characters in David Copperfield, one of Dickens' novels. He's probably the least likable uh, character that I can think of in a novel like that. And he's just always going on about uh, how, how humble I am. I'm a humble man from humble means. And you see clearly in his development and the plot as it unfolds that he's doing this from an agenda to get power over people, to attain to a certain position. It's false humility. It's very ugly. It's despicable. It's slimy. Dickens does an amazing job of <clears throat> pointing that out in this man. But that's not what's going on here. The centurion has a correct assessment, and that's what true humility is. And I think this is especially remarkable that this centurion could avoid all the traps that would, you know, grab him up in the pride of this world. You think about who he is, even as we've considered him this morning. He, he was, you know, and as we think about these things, think about yourself, too, because a lot of these things are common in your life. Uh, this man was competent. He had succeeded. I mean, generally, he'd done really well. The assignments he was given, he'd obviously accomplished them uh, to great acclaim. And so, I mean, that's a trapping to pull you into pride. This man had wealth. He had, you know... He's able to fund this synagogue being built. He's looked to as, you know, one of the wealthy men of the whole city. Uh, that does something to one's heart. Uh, why is it that I would get this wealth? There must be some underlying reason, and that reason, at least in part, is myself. He is esteemed. Everybody likes him. That's certainly puffing up our ego. What a tremendous battle to fight off that, to, to see clearly. He has unlimited authority, basically. I mean, when he tells people to go, they go. 
he tells, you know, these weren't the soldiers. These were the Jewish elders. These are basically the congressmen of Capernaum. And he's telling them to go, and they immediately go. You know what happens when, when people have that kind of power? Motives aside, you're just going to tend to think and to realize that, hmm, I'm telling these people jump, and they are immediately doing it. I really must be supreme. I mean, there's a, there's a reason. I, there's a hierarchy here, and that's just my place in life. He had all this success. He was on the side of the, the Roman army who was the conqueror. You know, they were, they, they were putting down all the rebellions. They were never losing. And so he had all these things really stacked up against him in this battle for humility, and yet he sees clearly who he really is. I think that, that's an element of the remarkable nature of his confession. All those things, all these trappings of life, they lure us into what C.S. Lewis calls an anti-God mindset. That's the mindset of pride, and it is very much, it is opposed to God, 180 degrees. So what's the corrective for us? I think it's the same as with the centurion. When you see who Christ truly is, you will see your true nature. If you're worshiping Christ correctly for who he is, you're going to see your flaws. They're, they're going to come to the surface. I mean, that's just the way it is. It happened with him. It's going to happen with you. And so if you think that you, you have it all buttoned up and you're doing okay in life, the corollary to that is that your view of Christ at that moment to some degree isn't what it ought to be and your worship of him isn't pure as it ought to be. These are, these, these are very, um, not condemning, but they're convicting words. Even for myself, as, as I stand here, uh, true humility and its relation to seeing our Savior correctly, it's a key thing for us to take away. I want to point out, too, that this centurion, another part of his confession, is that he recognized Jesus' authority. These things are all sort of coming together, but, I mean, look at how he, he addresses Jesus with his message. Uh, this, this is what he says to them, Lord, do not trouble yourself. That's not what the Jewish elders said. There was no politeness in their words, but this centurion is saying, Lord, he recognizes Jesus' authority. And I think we can make the case that he's not just saying, sir, that's within the semantic range of that word, but he's affirming who Jesus actually is. Lord, this is what he's saying. And for a Roman soldier, I mean, Caesar was Lord. Saying someone else was Lord, that's, that's penalty of death for you. So this is not just being polite. He confesses that he has come to know who Jesus is, hence his word, just say the word. Such faith. He hasn't met Jesus. He, he knows that Jesus hasn't met him, but he recognizes Jesus' authority and his willingness to save. So verse 8, for I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and am I slave, do this, and he does it. He's not bragging here. He's just explaining to Jesus that, at least on some level, I'm understanding your authority. I mean, I've got it on a human level. In a physical realm, uh, there are people who just, this is their, their, their station in, in this setup. They are to submit to my authority on a physical realm. But you say the word, and this man's going to be saved. You have authority over the physical and the spiritual. You have all-encompassing authority. 
That's what he's saying. He's confessing his awareness of who Christ is. He knew that his authority was derived from the emperor, but he also knew that Jesus' authority was derived from his deity, from who he is as God. He had authority without limit. There's a clear distance. I mean, he's, he's sending a message to a man who, who can't, he, he can't even see. He's not there under his roof, and yet he's affirming that, yeah, just say the word, and I know he'll be healed. R.C. Sproul says, Here was a man who had stood before generals, maybe even the emperor of Rome, but he knew somehow that in Christ he was dealing with someone who exercised consummate lordship. That's what's going on. And so I, I ask you and I ask us, is this your perspective? Do you call on him as Lord? Built into that is going to be something really important, something that's very biblical. Built into that is submission to him as the authority. That's why Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Then a follow-up question, Christian, do you want stronger faith, like this centurion's commendable faith, and the blessings that stem forth from that? Then you need to ask, where is your focus? Where was this centurion's focus? I mean, clearly he's He's concerned with his slave. He calls him, you know, he calls him, he's called a slave the first time, but in the second one, there's a different term used, pice. It means like my beloved son, my boy. He, he very much cares for that slave, but his focus and his meditations and his messages, his focus is on the Savior, not just the slave. The faith with that kind of focus will bring you, the focus on Christ, it will bring you boldness, it will bring you confidence and strength as you look to the issues. You're going to be much quicker to go to pray to the Savior, to, to be bold in the face of evangelistic opportunities that come, of uh, intimidation that might come from the corruptible world around us. A focus on the Savior will push us towards the right responses in the face of those things. And that's what we see with this man. That's what marks his confession uh, tremendous boldness and confidence. So that's the confession. I want us to move to our, our fourth point. This is the, uh, the time when we look at Jesus himself. This is the commender of saving faith. I might say commendation of saving faith, but, but I think if the centurion was here and he would, he would take our questions and we asked him, you know, who's the hero of this story, he wouldn't point to himself. He would say, it's, it's this guy, it's the commender. Yes, he gave me a great commendation, the faith that I have in him, a commendation, but it's the commender of saving faith. He's the hero. He is the object of this great faith. So what do those words tell us about him, the commender? Uh, verse 6, first, I just want to see what's in his response. I mean, this is the elders with their contrasting explanation of this man's worthiness, and they say, please come. And what does he do? He doesn't rebuke them. Uh, he doesn't make a theological clarification with them. He doesn't say, well, why didn't he come? Why does he send you guys? And he just goes with them. He says Jesus started on his way with them. We just see willing grace in the Savior. That should mark us, by the way. You know, you, you are well taught here, but no doubt you have family and friends who, you know, if they're lost, 
their theological errors, they're going to come to the surface while you're talking over dinner, while you're making small talk on the phone or whatever, while you're texting with them. Uh, that's not the opportunity to bat them over the head with this is what, you know, Herman Bovink says about that. This is, that's the opportunity to find inroads to the grace of Christ, the message of the grace of Christ to that person. And this is what we see in Jesus. The centurion anticipated Jesus' grace, and he was banking on it. That's why he sent the men out to Jesus. Jesus here is eager to save the unworthy. Uh, and the man looked in faith, and he knew that. And, and so what is it that Jesus is looking for as he goes? He goes with the men to the centurion. Was he looking for more opportunities to do miracles? Well, that's clearly not the case. He had done hundreds of miracles. There was no lack. What else would he be looking for? He wasn't looking for the things that impress us, is the point. He, he, he was looking for faith, and he found it in this man, and he marveled approvingly. Uh, that word, and include to just, including just like the marvel aspect of it, there's a joy in finding it that's implied there. He was glad to have found this man in this interaction. And we ought to be this way as well, looking for and encouraging in our brothers and sisters these evidences of faith. We want to approve and encourage the things that honor him, the things that cause angels to sing, the things that causes heaven to rejoice. And that's what we see in the commender. We see also his teaching. You can see how purposeful Jesus was in verse 9. He didn't just sort of mutter to himself, wow, this is amazing faith. No, he, he, he was very intentional. He turned to the crowd to make sure that they knew what was going on. He taught them. He's not speaking under his breath, but he's presenting this centurion as an object lesson for him, as we said at the beginning. This is what I was just talking about. This is saving faith. Not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And from a Gentile, it's amazing. You know, the Jewish elders are still standing there. You can imagine how offended they were. You know, you're, you're pointing to this guy as the saving faith model? That's, that's scandalous. He's the oppressive force, like we said. He's the face of the emperor ruling over God's people in God's chosen land. And this one is the quintessence of saving faith? Sadly, we know that this is what Israel did. They rejected him despite all these miracles. In fact, in Nazareth, in his hometown, they even tried to throw him off a cliff for what he did. They rejected all these works. But for this centurion, Jesus concludes that he was right in his confession. The confession that Jesus is Lord, that man is not worthy of him, that salvation comes by trusting in his word by faith. And then the last thing, we haven't even hit verse 10. This is actually the miracle. This is the thing that impresses the world, but it kind of just hangs there as an appendix. It's like we could do the whole lesson and get it without the, the real physical object lesson. But he does. In his grace, he heals the servant. He shows it up with his actions. He backs up what he's saying. That's the final touch in the illustration, it's, and it really is the, the perfect capstone. And there's much to instruct us from this verse, especially if you just kind of quickly consider that slave's plight. I mean, we haven't even considered anything from his perspective yet. No one really thinks about the man lowered from the roof so much or the slave here who was healed. 
But he hasn't met Jesus. He hasn't lived for Jesus. He hasn't spoken to Jesus. In his version, Matthew 8 tells us that he was just paralyzed and he was fearfully tormented. He has nothing going for himself. He can't talk. He can't save himself. He can't even properly understand his predicament. I hope that sounds familiar for us. Because we can really think about this illustrating us if we're in Christ. I believe he does illustrate all of us who call upon Jesus' name. And how Jesus comes and by his sovereign word saves the life of one who was not seeking him. Who couldn't even understand the danger he was in. Who was completely unable to save himself. That's this slave. Jesus brings life where there was only death. He's full of grace, and he loves to save repentant sinners. And so with that, I hope you see, as we have looked through this beautiful, real-life illustration of faith, that he is worthy of your faith and your worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your kindness of uh, certainly not leaving us in the dark, but giving us objective truth that we can build our lives upon and giving us this glimpse of the Savior. And even in such a grace that uh, as this interaction with a slave who did not deserve life and was not even calling for life, how how you brought forth life in him, but more importantly, how you demonstrated and taught what true faith is. So I pray that this glimpse will stick with us and that you'll help us to, to see that what you call for, uh, in light of the world that vies for our ambitions and our emotions, it's difficult, uh, but it's so simple. It's grace alone through what you, Christ, have done. And so I pray for the people here and for my heart as well, that you will cement these truths in us and be made much of in our lives as a result. In Christ's name, amen.